we have a weekly podcast, which in the way that we normally do it, it's, it's we just record it, do some edits, and it becomes a podcast that lives evergreen forever on our podcast platform where people will listen to the audio on you know, Spotify, Apple, Google, all the places that they can listen to it. Um, and then we have the YouTube. We always film it so that there's sometimes there's some video cues and stuff like that. So I started asking about some topics and brought one of the do this live today. So thanks for joining. Comment as you wish. I'm going to take a look over every once in a while if I can do something. But it's going to be really fun. We're going to be really interactive today. But first, I want to start out with a shout out. Something I've started doing on my podcast here recently. I champion disaster companies, companies, contractors, specialists that do disaster recovery, whether that be fire, water, mold, bio, anything inside of this restoration space. Um, I champion those companies. I was I did that for 20 years, and now I am a coach in that space, but I just absolutely floored by that. And I, and I particularly, no bias here, but I particularly like to mingle with smaller and medium size because they just get it. There's still that want, that hunger, and that desire, and they also don't think they know everything, so the egos are still low. You get some of the big guys, and no offense to the big companies who I know a a lot of they just it's just a different feel right so i like to give a shout out to interesting or powerful or unique or whatever contractors and some that i know some that i just met but one that i ran into i was in anaheim california two weeks ago and it was a room full of restores and there was a lot of great people there i could mention all of them but a good friend of mine adam redhead owns a company in anaheim called restoration heroes i met adam in 2019 at um we were having a summit for the alliance of independent restores in boulder and adam comes from a different background uh, different business but he's good at business and he just had a heart that wanted to start this company and he had in his mind how he was going to develop it and build it based off of the limited amount of what he knew he had done all of his he'd spent a year getting his certifications and learning what he learned and discovering stuff he came to this summit and had 120 people who all thought completely different than the way he had learned that he was supposed to run it and he just went back to his Anaheim and said I just tore my whole idea down and just had to reconstruct it from the ground up he met one of the guys at the conference that he really connected with and he flew out and spent a week with them at their company as a tech said I want to like work through the week in all positions I would like to see what it looks like we're never going to be competition so why not he did that went back fast forward to now he's got a great brand he's doing so many things right onboarding the customer super good I wouldn't say that the talent acquisition problem has been a problem for him but he's got a good team that attracts a lot more people great culture he's doing a lot of work a lot of business in a very very saturated market but he knows who his client is I'm not going to throw out his revenue because everybody's like gets into that and, and says you know um this I'm doing somebody's doing more there's always somebody doing more he is happy with where he's at trying to improve processes become more profitable and then find better ways to take better care of his team but this is an owner that delegates supports his team so big shout out to adam redhead with restoration heroes in anaheim about three weeks ago i put a poll into two different groups on different groups on facebook you know the forums one being the water damage cleanup page or restoration page and then the other is my own group restoration nation i wanted to share with you the results of that poll as we talk about because it, it's very interesting and it's going to tie into some of the things that we dive into later the question that i asked was do you feel obligated to comply with your client's insurance or even communicate with them this is a very big question. It's a very polarizing question. And one of our feedback for today's input was is about this. But here's the meaning of the question. We all want to do the best we can for our customer. There's no doubt there. Sometimes that means they don't know what we know. We have to help them through that process. But the more that we have leaned in over the last 10, 12, 15 years in this industry, trying to be their advocate and their claim specialist and all these other things, the more we do that, the worse it's ending up for us. And there's also laws around that. So when I say you're obligated, that means that when their customer, you're not on a managed care program, you're not on the TPA, their insurance who clearly just has one goal, which is to minimize how much they pay, is using processes to get you to change your price or to put the customer in a bad position where they alienate you and go with the carrier and the program and TPAs. They get a check for much less than what you invoiced, and now you're stuck with the upset customer. Do you feel obligated to 
participate in that mind screw. It's what it is. They're just screwing with your mind. They're using their power and leverage. Do you feel obligated? And do you even communicate with them at all? Because the more you communicate and participate, you become part of their game. You become a chess palm piece on their board. So one group, water damage group, whatever, water damage restoration group, it says it had 40 votes. 40 people decided that that was a question they wanted to push a button for. For the yes answer, there was 25%, 10 people. 10 people said yes, they feel obligated to work with their customer's insurance. And maybe those are program and TPA vendors. I don't know. If that's the case, that's an automatic default yes. 50% said no. Of the 40, 20 people said no, I don't feel that obligation. And then I left the option open, didn't intend to, but I left the option for you to add another choice. And it was, depends on the situation, 25 more percent to round that up with 10 per people said depends on the situation. So we could dive into what that means, but depends on the situation. That sounds like it's not yes or no, and you don't have a process around that you're probably caught on the fence and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. And I don't like to leave my business up to luck. So that's it. In Restoration Nation, we did not have as many votes. Group's not as big. I don't know why. Could be that, you know, because I post in my own group so much, Facebook has algorithms that doesn't show everybody. They didn't see it. If I were to ask every member of it, they say, I never saw the poll or I'm not even on Facebook. And there's there, there's that. They had 17 votes and there was just a yes and no. 5% said yes. One person out of 17 said yes, I feel obligated. 95%, 16 people said no. So there was no middle ground. It was heavily weighted to one side. What causes that? I don't know. So do you talk to your insurance company? Do you deal with their insurance? Do you feel obligated to remove line items, discount the carrier? Everybody, if you follow me, you know how I feel about that. I don't know why. I'm perplexed about why that's even an option. So... Anyway, thought that was really interesting, and um, I wanted to share the results with that. I think the uh, I think it was probably ended. So those watching, if you want to throw some comments in there, how would you have voted in that poll if you did or did not? Would you have voted yes, I feel obligated, or no, or C, depends on the situation. So drop that in there, and I would just want to keep moving forward. The rest of the podcast I wanted to, and how this all started, was I dropped into a couple of groups, into a big chat group we're in, even over on my LinkedIn. I was a little bit at a loss of what to really talk about today. This is my third season of a podcast, and just there's some days I just felt like I've talked about a lot of things repeated times. But some things need to be talked about more. So I just asked a question. I have a podcast to do. What topics would you like to talk about? And it was the right thing to do because it gave it a lot of feedback. So what I decided to do with that is just make today's show about addressing some of those. Because there were so many. They were all good. As a lot of people tell me, I don't like anything to be tomorrow or next month. I wanted to cover them all today. So I'm going to go through some rapid fire. Some of these are redundant. There are a lot of things were asked pretty much the same question, but in a different way. We're going to kind of condense those. But I want to thank you, William and Johnny. Hey, Johnny, how you doing, bud? Hadn't seen you in a while. William and Johnny and hey, Robert uh, said C, depends on the situation. Fair, 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 fair. So when I ask the question, what topics would you like to talk about? These aren't in order. I think some are very, very important. We'll get to them. We'll spend a little bit longer. James Groves, good friend of mine, hole in the wall, drywall and restoration out of Orlando and also a location, I believe, in Birmingham, maybe now Atlanta, uh, really scaling his business in the uh, drywall repair as well as restoration mold out of Florida. Set employee appreciation. I think that's a topic that is broad and wide, but it's certainly huge. This is one of the ones that a lot of these questions tie into the bigger bucket of culture. But employee appreciation is, is what are you doing to show your team beyond financial, beyond just walking up with an obligatory pat on the back saying, hey, you're doing good. Good job, Beaver. You know, instead of that, what are you doing to actually show your team that you appreciate what they sacrifice, what they do? So when I talk about sacrifice, like first off, I'm a black and white kind of person. You've got a job to do. If you take a job, we're in the emergency services business. Most of you all do emergency services. It's going to require doing, this is not nine to five. It's going to require doing things that are outside of the scope of what a lot of people do for a living. That's the job. Of course, you appreciate people and you're going to show them, but I don't believe you can't stop doing, you can't take people out of what we do for a living to make them feel better. And I think that's happening a lot in the business, but employee appreciation can be shown in a lot of ways. I'll talk about James. I know James personally, so he's a chef. 
I mean, that dude can cook and he's grill master. They cook big meals at work together, whether it's a breakfast or a lunch once a week or a bigger meal. He'll make something at home. Like he's making some really cool stuff. And so that's his one of his ways. I know that appreciation comes in the advancement in career paths. Are people, are you asking the right questions? Do you have the tools you need to do? I don't mean the physical tools, but do you have everything you need to do to be successful? What does success look like for you? Are you getting there? Are you following the path of what you thought you were going to be following? All these things are employee appreciation. So big topic. Thank you, James, for throwing that one in there. Next question is from a, a newer restore based out of Houston, Texas. And, you know, most of these are from people I know, right? So Eleron is uh, new to the industry and the heart of a saint. And he's brand new, trying to start this business. And he went and worked in, in Florida. Some things went well. I think Florida for uh, Hurricane Ian. Some things went well. Some things didn't. Just like everybody, we all have learning curves. So Elrond asked a question about partnerships, JVs, which are joint ventures. I had to ask him what JVs meant. I was thinking junior varsity. And creating constant leads for a startup company. So partnerships and joint ventures probably fit into one bucket. And I know that Elrond's talking about he went to Florida, teamed up with some people, and they were supposed to collaborate to create more capacity resources. Some of them were stronger in areas than others weren't. Some of those didn't go well. If you're going to create a partnership or a joint venture with anyone, there's a couple things that just you have to do. First, don't chase the opportunity. Look at the opportunity of who you're working with. Don't chase. We could. It's risk. We could make a lot of money if things go well. But if you don't know the person you're teaming up with, or if you just met them, if you put on the group, one of the groups here and said, hey, we're going, I'm going to Florida. Who wants to team up? You're going to have 50 Cowboys that all think they know what they're doing. None of you know what you're doing. And you're going to team up and it's going to be a bad situation because it's a whole different ballgame. Chasing work and, you know, five states away, contracting laws, licensing laws, et cetera, et cetera. Create an agreement. Create a physical outline of obligations, expectations, responsibilities, and accountable. Who's doing what? Who carries the invoice? Or who carries the license? In Florida, you had to work under someone else. What are we providing? How are we tracking what we're doing? And how are we going to make sure that we're made whole at the end? You have to have those hard questions answered before you do it. It feels like you've got to hurry and it's got to kick off right away. And you don't have time. It's you're wrong. You don't have to do that. If, if you're aligned with someone who goes to Florida and you're trying to do mold where it's licensed mold, I'm not going to have a partnership with someone who breaks the law. It's a mold regulated state. You got to have a license for that. I'm not going to put my brand up for jeopardy. So partnerships, agreements, and don't forget anything and whoever you work with becomes your tribe, your public, your community, even five states away back in Texas or up in Oklahoma or up in Virginia. In the world of social media, everything follows you. You can't go out to Florida and do stuff and no one knows anymore. It's just those days are gone. So whoever you circle yourself with now is going to have a lasting impression on the next several years. People forgive, but they don't forget. So partnerships create a scope of work, an agreement, a binding agreement. And that way, when someone's not paying you, you have a legal leg to stand on. If you have all that, then it's all about vetting the people. Be really picky. Be really, really picky. I would love to not go do any work and put out any cost and just build my market at home or whatever, or just do it slow and the hard way than I would be to team up with some cowboys that aren't going to pay me. And then the other one, Eleron, is creating leads for a small company is business one-on-one. It's, it's something that everybody faces. You have to know how to market and sell. Yeah, I don't care if you're selling widgets or if you're shining shoes or if you're selling cars. There has to be an acquisition of leads. That's the front, the top of the funnel. Without that, it doesn't matter how good a job you do. And I know you know that, but as a water damage restoration company, your community needs to know what would make you hire you. Where do your eyeballs when you have a flood or a fire? Or if you're calling the insurance company, maybe you need to be on the programs for a while. But SEO plays a big part of it. Pay-per-click, all of it costs. It's an investment. That means the job that you are doing cannot be discounted. You need to price your work profitable so that you can afford money to put together a real digital strategy, possibly hire someone, possibly you know use a service or a source that pays up for that. But paying for leads with plumbers or lead gen companies or TPAs is going to stall your growth because you might be busy, but you won't be profitable. Being busy doesn't make you grow. Profit in the bank makes you grow. 
Hope that helps that question. Any comments about that? Anyone agree or disagree with anything I say here? Hit me up, make a comment. I would be happy to, to have that conversation. The next question back to, again, like what James said, more culture. Trey Rains, our buddy from Rains Restoration in Maryland. Culture hire over skilled workers. And, and I know Trey well, and he's talking about hiring people of value instead of valuable people, which means they've got to fit what your company is. They can't just be skilled and be dumbasses or thieves or unethical or not transparent or have no empathy. That's not going to help you. It helps you do the job, but it doesn't help you grow your company. So consider to run a company. We Everybody uses it like Chick-fil-A, whether you like them or not. They are able to attract people, young people, Men and women, they start at the bottom and they grow, they, but they've got all the key characteristics. And I use that word, Don't, core values, whatever. I want people with characteristics that match what we're trying to do. I know that if I need to have a lead technician or a project manager that needs to know how to be adaptive, I need to hire someone with the characteristics of creativity, confidence, ingenuity, so they can create solutions and even take a risk and jump in and try to do something without, it's the whole, don't ask for permission, ask for you know, forgiveness. I don't need people who are just going to show up, punch the clock and ask me every question about, do I turn right? And do I turn left? I need those people. I need people with an overwhelming amount of empathy or not overwhelming, excuse me, that can go too far. Empathy that matches with my core value is that we are empathetic. We may have a process. We may have a protocol on how we do things, but the first thing that's important is our customers, our customers. And if we have to Bend a little bit of a policy because that customer needs a little bit more from us, a little more time, a little more work, a little more, you know, holding their hand listening. Then I want someone who's going to be compelled to do that and even call me out as a leader saying, I'm doing what the core values of your company. The reason that I agreed to sign on and come aboard was because you said you did this stuff. Now that I'm here, if you're not letting me do those stuff, then you lied. Hire that. And I think those people become your skilled people. I think someone starting in your company without experience in restoration has the potential to be a far better long-term employee, junior leader, and then a foundational piece of your company than those that you just hired who might be bringing bad habits, who might not be working somewhere else because they have done something wrong. They're not employable. So, you're, you know, they're on the, especially right now, everybody, if you're looking for a job, it's not hard to find one. So... Uh, you might be getting the crumbs of what's left over from the good stuff. Eric Downey out of Louisiana. I love Eric. Eric's got a lot of energy, man. That guy hits it hard. He says, the way we've always done it, that's all he said. I don't know what he means is um, adaptability to change. Our business, our industry, everything is changing right now. And I, I write, I blog about this. I talk about it on podcasts. And I think that um, in some ways we are, um, we're stalled the way we've always done it. We don't want to be the only one that does something in our market. We don't want to uh, leave Xactimate and do TNM because, because, because all the excuses, which none of them are legitimate. But I think if we don't change, we're going to be like the, you know, everybody uses Blockbuster and, and the phone book and landlines and people that put all their energy. In. Look, I don't know five years from now if brick and mortar stores are going to be nearly as big as they are right now. I, I'm watching a lot of chains that we've had around forever go out of business. I saw a, a link today, a story that the United States Postal Service has suspended work in six states. First off, very few people use the mail anymore. Everything's gone digital. And I think there's other services out there that have beat them and they didn't adapt. And, and you've still got the same type of culture at the Postal Service. And I just don't think that scales. So Eric's right, the way always been done. Robert Marie, thank you. I think you're on the call today. I know some people are coming and going. Uh, right people, right processes. Sounds like you're a, a big fan of uh, Jim Collins and Gino Wickman, EOS and good to great. You got to hire the right people back to the culture and you got to have processes that match what those people do. Your process can make up for the quality of your people to some point, but it's not a replacement. Your process being good doesn't mean you can get a lower caliber people. You should be getting the best people you can. Can you afford them? I think yes. Your prices should reflect what you charge the consumer. If you're going after the right customer that will pay what you're worth, they'll go after it. But the wrong people can't do the job. End up having issues with staff, with the wrong people, and all you can do is extreme ownership, point the finger back at yourself saying, well, I hired them. I screwed up. I did this to everybody else on my team. I brought somebody aboard that doesn't fit the culture. So, Robert, that's along those lines. You and I talk about it a lot. We all do. Darren Miller, 
Darren Mills is one of my favorite restorers. You talk about a heart of a saint. Darren's in uh, Canada, way out in West Canada, beautiful place in Chilliwick, out near Vancouver. And he had a few things here, again, crossing over into culture. Create leaders in the company, attraction marketing for prospects and creating SOPs. Attraction marketing for prospects. Create leaders in the company. Yeah, that's a big topic, but we're not going to talk about that. But attraction marketing is something that we have coached on here. We've done a, a seminar about it. You need to shift over a lot of the funds and the money that you use for your marketing for jobs over into creating an attractive funnel for good people. Are you a place that looks like it would be great to work at? What ads are they responding to? I'm writing a small course right now about writing a great ad to hire someone, whether it be Indeed, LinkedIn, compelling copy, it's copywriting, compelling copy format, things like that, that make someone stop for a moment that might be of high quality that has a future in their vision and their dashboard. And it's like, oh, that looks like a place that matches up with something better than what I'm doing. That I like what they're saying. You're painting a picture of what the future might look for them. Here's what I'd like to tell everybody here. I love this topic. I think it's a huge one. Do not put the job description in the ad. It's a word wall. Many, many people will disqualify themselves based on what you are requiring before they even have a chance to show up and see if you might say, well, I'll train you to do that. Examples. We'll be doing psychometry with drying. That sounds like a big word in science. And some people may say, I hate science. I don't want to do science. I want to help people, but I don't like science. It's required part of our job and they'll grow into it. What about must be good at math? Cancel me out. I don't want to do math. Must work nights and weekends, lift 75 pounds, on and on and on. I mean, listen, all these things are required. It's very fair that this is part of they need to have the transparency of this, but not when you're trying to get them to come into your office to meet you and your team and see what you're about. Because they may, when they come in and sit with you and you say, this is what this job is going to require, and you might not be there yet. So I have different tech levels from one through five per job. You might not be there yet, but you can get there. I don't need an excellent person at math. We use apps. I'm going to show you this stuff. I'm going to give you an opportunity and show you a trade that's going to create a career for you that you could one day own your own place. But it starts with coming in, and I need a couple of good years. I need people like you to help me build this company. Bring people in. Don't let them disqualify themselves. Be attractive. What do your reviews say? Your reviews online, Google, Yahoo, wherever, they're great for the customers. What about for other people to say, I want to come work for you, but you've got bad reviews. you got a 3.0, you got a 2.1. As opposed to, I've got a lot of reviews at 4.8, 4.9, and every one of them, if I look them up and read them, it looks like somebody in your company intentionally responds back to every person like they're a part of your family. That's a place I'd like to work at. They read the reviews. It has employees' names in it. Great working with Victor, Barbara. This is attraction marketing. By the way, you share those in the ad with uh, don't take our word for it. Look at what our customers say. Creating SOPs. Oh, Darren, that's a big one that everyone asks. That's not here. It kind of goes back to if you're delegating, if all of you, if it's your job, if you're the owner and you've decided that your role is to create SOPs, that means you've got to stop doing other things and let teach other people to do stuff so that you can do what you need to do. Otherwise, no one does the thing that you want to get done. You're running the jobs and no SOPs are getting built. The workers are just, every day's a new day. There's no process because there's no SOPs written. But you're the perfect person that agreed to do it. You've got to get out of the truck. You've got to get out of the business and put someone else in charge. If someone else is in charge for creating SOPs, how many do you want from them a month on what topics? How do you acquire a list of which ones to do in what order? Writing an SOP is not difficult. You start with the outcome and small bites. We are coaches. Toby's a coach with Trainual. We show people how to not only create SOPs, but put them into a beautiful platform where through their tablet and their phones, everybody has a hiring process. They go through the employee manual before they get started, before they ever get in the field, they have to complete all of these modules. How do you change the filter on an air scrubber? It's that simple. The final goal is what you want done. A new HEPA filter be put in a HEPA 500, which is, by the way, different from other models, but it's one module around that. So you start at the beginning to get from there to there. What tools do you need? How do you do it? When do you do it? How do you make sure that you did it right? And what happens if you can't complete it? Who do you talk to? That's a process. But what that means is you will change the filter on a HEPA after every fifth job. How do we know which job it is? You put a sticker on the side, check mark, complete the job. One, two, three, four, five. Do you know how to test a hair scrubber for CFM? All these things. 
create a process. How do you log into Xactimate? How do you create Xactimate? There are free and very low price price paid programs that allow you to screen record. And it could be for your software. How do you create an estimate Xactimate? How about you start one from the beginning and film it? Someone has to watch it with you narrating your steps, talking about it, break it up into smaller pieces. SOPs aren't hard, but it's taking that first step. There's someone one time that said, anyone can learn how to do anything in 20 hours or less. But it's that first hour, which takes people years to start. Remember that. If you start saying right now, I want to create five SOPs per month. Do you know how many you'll have at the end of the year? I'm not a mathematician, but you'll have 60. You'll have 60 SOPs. And if you're starting with the most important things, it starts to create something. Then you delegate to people that are in divisions. The estimator should be creating SOPs for estimating SOPs. The office admin should be creating those. The field techs, the business development people, everyone else should be assigned a lane and they're creating SOPs, which will... Now, I've learned that people are like, I'm not going to document my job because you can get rid of me. That's not the right people. That's the wrong idea. That's the wrong plan. Now it's when they become managers of other people, they now have something to send people through for training. So I hope that helps. Darren, thumbs up, anyone? SOPs aren't difficult. Finding times and the format in which to do them can be. If you don't want to use the app, use Google Drive, use Dropbox, start creating them. folders, subfolders, then figure out how you're going to deploy those for people to watch and learn. And then you got to validate that they understand it, comprehension, quiz, an assessment, and someone has to sign off saying that I've seen Darren do this three times. Three times they've done it, they are now proficient in doing it. It's that simple. David Cashian, employee transformation. We're kind of talking about the same thing. How are they becoming better than they were yesterday? The same way you would be, right? What are you doing to help them, not just professionally, but personally? Do they trust you? Are they following you? Are they willing to do anything? Do they sign up to go where you're going, where you're taking this ship? Employee transformation is very, very full. Again, this is talking about, I'll go ahead and mention it right here as we're talking about that. I have a blog that's coming out in a few weeks. It's called Things Break in the Middle. Middle management, there's this principle of the Peter principle where junior leaders are, you know, anyone that shows up, does a good job, has some core values, they're usually promoted and elevated in their company. What happens is a few things. They're elevated up to a level where they're incompetent. They continue to be elevated. Well, now they're in a position where they're managing other people, but they have no skills around that. They've never done that. So they're expected to do so. And you see a degradation of their spirit and people's willpower because now I'm in a position I'm not qualified for. I'm getting paid to do so. Somebody's going to find out and take my pay from me. It's not good. And then you've got people below and above that are just have different expectations of what's really going on. Transformation is very important. But if you're going to put somebody in a new position, it should be a month out or a couple of months out because there's got to have a track, have an idea of how you get people going forward on that. Silver Warrior. Amazing how a solid SOP still needs to change as technology changes. Same fundamentals usually, but may need to be updated several times a year in some instances. 100% right, which is why I prefer Trainual because... Your employees are logged in. They're going to be notified. If you change an SOP or a procedure, if you use a different program now, or if you add a step to it, they're notified that what you learned has now been modified, changed, and they now have to take it again. So what you have is accountability that Silver Warrior is told that there's a new way to change a filter. We use a new filter type or we've blah, 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 whatever it is. And we use Xactimate in a different way because it's now Xactimate 1 instead of whatever version we were in before. There's a whole new set. Someone has to learn it, but you don't have to go out and find everybody in the company and kind of ask them, hey, what do you remember how to do? They're told again. They take some training again. And maybe it's just a module or two that's been updated. Again, it's validated. They sign on, they take a quiz showing that they're proficient in it, and you now have the ability when someone does it wrong and says, hey, you're still doing it the old way, on April 3rd, you took a quiz that said you knew what to do. You have been taught. By the way, that's how you make sure that everybody in the company is on the same level playing field. Good stuff there, Blaine. Blaine is a silver warrior. Jumping ahead to asbestos testing, that was a big one. It was uh, what houses or what structures do you test on and who pays? Both of these, I'm not going to go dive into them. I'm going to say in the description of this post, I'm going to put the link to, we we did a whole thing on asbestos testing. High level, it's required in all states. If you have workers on the job, you're required to ensure with an ACM test that that building material at which you is disturbed or will be disturbed does not contain any asbestos. It's a state law. Some laws, some states have more, but you can't just go and do demo. 
There are penalties, heavy, strong, very expensive. I did a podcast on the new penalties of that. All this information we talk about, but you must do it. Carrie doesn't want to pay. Doesn't mean you can't do it. You got to figure out how you and your customer have to reconcile that I'm going to incur costs. Make them pay for it. Or you just have to walk. You can't do a job that you haven't tested. There's houses built in 2017 that are coming back with asbestos in the joint compound, different glues. I've talked about this one ad nauseum. So I understand if you haven't ever seen this conversation, but if you've seen it and you're choosing not to act, you're not the right people. You're not doing the right thing. You're not a restoration professional. I am absolutely sorry that comes out sounding the way it is, but you're not. You cannot expose your workers and your company to asbestos laws and harm to their health and the property of others if you know it's the law and you just choose not to do it because of some part some adjuster that says he doesn't want to pay for it it's your job to say this is what our company does it's a law i don't kill people because it's against the law no one could ask me to kill someone who pays for it your customer pays for it i don't expect you to absorb it why would you it's cost of doing business you're damn right it is I got one big one that I'm really waiting to get to that uh, I can't wait to talk about. Ryan Piles from Rochester, uh, Restoration HQ, Restoration HQ, talked about, and he was more of a statement, but he also wanted to bring this up, communication with carriers, which it ties back to the poll I mentioned. The question was, uh, it's there's such a divide in our industry about who will and who doesn't and how they do. And that's going to be the truth in any trade or industry or business model lane. I think, again, we enthusiastically want to help our customer. And one of the ways that we can help them is knowing kind of our way around these complicated insurance issues. Number one, though, we can't read their policy, so we can't really identify and ascertain what they're covered for. So there goes that. We don't really expect that adjuster to be able to tell us what we can and cannot charge. Xactimate charges are not your price. What Xactimate has in their portal, you're supposed to modify it. It's not your rate. So carrier wants to know what your scope of work is going to be. Well, I've always, I've never dealt with carriers, guys. I have owned and operated, I've I worked in some half a billion dollar a year companies, and then I've owned my own company and exited that was extremely, really big, good. We didn't talk to carriers. We created a scope of work a work plan, a drying plan, and a timeline and a schedule of what's going to happen. We gave the customer everything that their insurance company needs. But at the end of the day, the customer was who was responsible to pay us. We entered into a contract. If they said, hey, my insurance is going to pay reimburse me for this, great. I'm really glad that you have insurance because that's a very valuable tool to have in your bed. Everyone should have insurance if they don't. You should have the right insurance. You should have enough. What's happened was the insurance companies have learned from Delay to Not Defend, Delay to Not Defend, while well, I pull the book up, and I know you, those of you listening won't get this, but I'm holding up a book called Delay to Not Defend by Jay Feynman that talks about they hired McKinsey Consulting, a huge multi-billion dollar a year consulting firm to help them write a playbook on how to avoid and how to play this game. And the more you communicate with them, the more you are helping them stall or whatever. But they at some point have chosen carriers, insurers, TPAs, have made some kind of hierarchical decision that we're going to mislead our customers. We're going to, I call it abuse because it, it really is. We're going to underpay them and use tactics that are spelled out here, which by the way, are actual and factual. They are not myths. They're not rumors. These are from whistleblowers and these for the McKinsey report, which was made public itself. They deploy these acts to use bad faith and even fraud for their customers. And that's a shame. Now, why don't I communicate with carriers? Not all of them are the same. Not all adjusters are bad people. But if I as a company decided it's inefficient and it's not profitable for me to be my customer's claims associate, then I'm going to choose to not even, now I'm not going to say I won't communicate with them. That's very, very broad. If they call and have a question about something, I think it's completely legitimate for me to answer that. But it's when they start to tell me what they do and don't pay for, well, I stop them. We're not going to go there. I've already promised my customer that wouldn't happen. This is already in my onboarding course that I've already given several times. I want to make this a real course, an e-course that you can take anytime. You're onboarding your customer to tell them what you will and won't do. If you choose to deal with carriers and communicate with them, that's fine. Continue to do that. But you don't get to complain about what they do to you and to your customer anymore. If you choose to do that, because here's the thing, relationships mean collaborative relationship means that we have a unified, the infinite and finite game. We have a unified goal which was to help this customer get life back to normal but if 
one side is trying really hard to do that and the other is working opposite, it's not a relationship. It's toxic, it's harmful, it's confusing, and it's expensive, and it really, really is going to make your customer choose teams. And unfortunately, if you don't spell it out, the customer is going to choose their team, not yours. They don't want to be dropped. They don't want to have to pay anything else on and on and on and on. You got to win that game. Now, to Ryan's question, I'm not here to say what you should and should not do. I just want to talk about the elephant in the room and exploit what happens and end with this. I was extremely successful doing this. Whether or not you want to believe me or not is way outside of my ability. But what you can do is talk to some people that have finally agreed that this is the way they're going to run their business and then have this moment where they say, why didn't I do this before? Why does anyone even deal with these carers anymore? It's a scheme. It's a game. Okay? But you can do what you want to. Clearly, the polls tell me that 25% of people uh, in some sections do, and some of you even answered it in some cases you do. I don't know what those cases are. And it's up to you to run your business. I have clients that don't completely align with my view. It's okay. They didn't hire me to change their mind. They hired me to help them run their company. You're just there hired to help that customer be made whole again. But you have an obligation to your company, so giving discounts back to the carriers doesn't match. It doesn't work. Manny Pozo. <laughs> Manny is in Miami. Great, great, great store. Uh, a lot of bio, a lot of different things. He asked about finder's fees for adjusters. Yuck. No, no. I don't know why. I mean, I know in Miami, a lot of people do it. I know in every market, some people are paying adjusters a kickback. Again, just like my last one, if you're willing to do business, and back to Eleron's partnerships and, and JVs, if you're going to do work with people that'll do things that you want to do, you've got to own that. If you're going to work with adjusters, if you think you're going to work with adjusters that only are giving you the job because you're giving them a kickback, which by the way, they're paid a salary from their company to take care of a customer. They're now doing side work. This is no different than your employees moonlighting taking money from customers on the side you might not have expected that from me but if you're willing to play the game where people get kickbacks you better know that your staff you're giving them permission to do so oh well, i would never tell my employees i'm doing this then you're not being transparent and you're probably gonna have a bigger problem so Manny, just to be clear Manny doesn't do this i think this could be said for pas and plumbers aren't the same but i'm not a fan of paying plumbers and i'm not going to get into that on this call so Manny, i know Manny's just saying that what's my thought on that that, what's everybody else? Do you pay adjusters for jobs? I could be completely delusional here. I did not think or know that was as big a problem as it was. Um, I've known lots of adjusters, independent, more than in uh, you know employed, independent adjusters. But here's the thing. If you start giving people kickbacks, you're now complicit to the activities. And that if their office or their entity or the insurance or anyone found out, you think you're being blacklisted now for just being expensive? Wait till they find out that you're doing kickbacks and they tell everybody else about that. It's not the kind of heat you want, right? So I hope that answered your question, Manny. I don't know if Manny did or was watching or will. Another one that I really, really like, which is what's the right size of growth for a company? What, when you're growing, where do you stop? I think that's what he's asking. What size is the right size? First off, the obvious answer is that's going to be different for everyone. It depends on what you want. Your goals, guys. Uh, we work in EOS. We do traction EOS. You're supposed to spell out a 10 or even a, a five-year plan, a five-year goal. Kind of as a roadmap. It's a GPS about that's where we're trying to go. But you've got to have the idea. Why do you want to get there? What is 10 million? What is 20 million? What does 30 million look like? Do any of you know what it's like to own or operate a $30 million fire and water damage restoration company? I can tell you right now, especially if you're struggling with infrastructure and staff and help, you're going to need people now. You're going to need a CEO. You're going to you're going to need a lot of people that you don't have right now because you can't do all that. You grow to become having $10 million, $30 million problems, and they're huge. Mistakes are costly. I'll say this, my experience, nothing more, nothing less, from knowing people, having grown my own company, I feel that the sweet spot for a water and fire restoration company is between four to six million maybe seven there's some caveats there what is your net profit no not not gross i don't care about your gross not at all zero i could care less about your revenue other than it's a tracking measure what's your keep on seven million is that blended between reconstruction, which takes a lot longer? It's a different set of you know functions, and it kills your your profit margin too. So if you're doing recon, maybe that's more like eight or nine. But what what do you want? And, and then 
Why are you building a company? Are you willing just to have something that you said was yours? Are you trying to create, which is, hear me now, the idea of owning your own business is not to have another job. It's to create a company that produces an income stream for you with as little or no input, a team running it, a company, so that you can go do one of two things. Enjoy your life, whatever that looks like, or start other ventures to create other investment opportunities that create more money for you. Meaning family. What does it mean? Are you are you frustrated because you don't get enough time with your family? Well, you can't keep doing what you've been doing and you be the one person in the whole company that everybody comes to for everything. That's not going to serve that need. You've got to have a plan. It takes a while to put that in, but it starts with a plan. If you have a $30 million a year company, do you know how to hire a CFO, a CEO? What do you expect them to do? Do you have a vision that's clear enough for them to cast that vision to execute on it? Or is it just murky enough that all you're doing is just every day, you're just reacting to $10 million worth the problems it's not fun i know people that have scaled to 15 and miss being at four and five okay how you have it set up i don't know if you're trying to just grow it to sell it to have someone come along and write you a big check for it that's not a bad thing okay but just know what it takes for you to get the right EBITDA, for you to get the right multiplier you've still got to have a lot of good strong things in place which lead to a valuation that makes it worth for you you can't build an eight million dollar a year company that's not worth anything if you don't have any sops and you don't have any uh, your receivables are a mess and and if you leave you know if you sell it you have to stay aboard as an employee for two years very common way to do m&a's uh, mergers and acquisitions or you walk away everything can't be in your head they've just now bought something that they've got to reconstruct from the ground up that's not valuable investors want something that's already printing money they look at your business as a business not as a empathy thing. So what size, Benny? Love to talk to you offline about that. I do a lot of goal setting and business planning with people. Um, that's what we do. So that's it. I'm going to go to the big one that I want to uh, actually got two. I'm sorry Two. a couple of comments here. Always test. Yeah. Civil warrior says never paid for adjusters. Yeah. Going to lunch, having a relationship used to be a good thing. I'd same way, uh, Blaine. I had relationships with adjusters that were great. They had a client that needed some help and they trusted that I could make that job a success and they would give that to us. I will say that on the residential side, that's probably not nearly as prominent. And Ryan Glasscock is on the call. In commercial, those relationships still exist, but you've got this captive issue. You've got uh, adjusters aren't allowed to have those relationships. Recommend you unless you're on the program, then the program, it goes through that process. So it's the relationship part is gone. Ryan Glasscock, people are the key to your company's growth. Yeah, no one, no one grew a beautiful, profitable, big, functional company all by themselves. I think that's probably not even accurate as much anymore, but not what we do. There are people who have online businesses that sell products that it's all automated, it delivers, and it's just one or two people, they're doing seven figures. It's a great business model starts to make you ask, why are we doing what we're doing when they can do that? Um, I'm making online courses because guys, what we're talking about here, this scaling, I want to create a company where I'm not the person that everything, I want other people to grow. I want other people to get podcasts and write blogs and get clients. I don't want to be the center of this company and I'm not. We've transitioned. I'm creating online courses and digital products so that people can buy those at their leisure, at their time, watch them from their device, learn a whole lot, real simple, frictionless. It's the way the world's going, but it's also a way that I can get grow and to do other things, whether it be take a cruise with my wife, go Montana, sit and fish all day, or start other companies that help more people and scale that way. But that only happens with good people. It doesn't happen with no good people. So when you next, when you're next hire, or well, first off, you need to really, really get serious about hiring a team. I get it. How do I bring people aboard if I don't have enough leads coming in? Well, how are you going to get more leads if you're doing jobs? If you're in the truck, if you're not able to get out, shake hands, kiss babies, get the phone ringing, get everyone in the market to know who you are because you're doing jobs, that's a trap and you're stuck. Dan Cuccino, sorry if I said that wrong. Can you break down a five million company for us? Dan, What? Uh, tell me what you mean real quick. I, I don't want to go down. What do you mean uh, uh, break it down? And, and, and what for, how would you like that? What specifically would you like to know? How many employees? What percent is what? I hope he's still on here. If not, I've got to kind of guess. But I'm going to give him a second to answer that. 
I'm going to keep watching for Dan's thing, but I'm going to go back to something. I got two more topics and we're going to be done with that. And I'll have questions. Oh, this was a question from a couple people and it, it kind of, it gained some momentum, which was bids for projects, bids for restoration. So I asked a clarifying question. Are you talking about mold jobs? Because we don't really bid emergency services as much. I mean, I have, I've given them a ROM up front, rough order magnitude. But when you talk about bids and what they clarified is bidding on mold jobs when there might be multiple bidders. Also what it came up about in one person, again, not calling someone out, but I was really shocked to see this. I'm going to be really, really honest, but it's worth discussing is their insurance denied their claim. And this now was a cash customer. Okay. And so it was $33,000. So they made an offer to the customer and I love this. I love, and I'm going to talk about this. They made an offer to the customer. Now that it's cash pay five incremental payments for a total of $18,000 or cash today to get started for 13,000. It's actually strategically, that could be a benefit, but here's a couple of things I want to talk about. There's something called price discrimination. It might look frowned upon. And in my, my initial response to that was, I treat all customers the same, whether they're paying or their insurance is going to reimburse them. Because ultimately, I look at customers only as they are paying me, they're being reimbursed by their insurance company. I also will say that I've put together a ROM, a suggested price, based on my numbers that I know I can do that job for. There's not that much flexibility. If I know I have this much overhead that I have to clear and I want to make this much profit and it's going to cost me this much to do the job, I've got that price right there. What has happened? Now, first off, sales 101, you have to build trust with your customer before you give them a price, before you even go out there. Again, plug, plug, plug right here. My client onboarding talks about all the things that you need to put in place before you ever even know your customer exists. The language on your website, your social media, how someone answers their phone, everything. Thing. The customers need to know how you do what you do and that you're the right choice. How many reviews? What do other people in their community say about you? What does the mayor in that town say about you? Have you ever gotten the mayor to write you a testimonial? Do you know the mayor? He likes you. Would he write you something saying, I've never had a flyer flood in my house, but I trust Dan. When you take a number in this specific case, and maybe you've had a case like this, when you drop your number from 33 to 18 to 13, you have just told your customer that I completely inflated the 33. In the world of price discrimination, it exists in a lot of different business markets. And I would say first thing that came to mind when I was starting to wrap this up was movies. Movie theaters give discounts to students. They have matinees before a certain time. It's a supply thing. They're trying to get more students in. You know, students who don't have much money, they're trying to get more of them in, which will improve them getting seats filled, which will be more revenue than empty seats, right? Sell more popcorn, more drinks. Elderly, senior citizen, military, they're trying to find these little demographic submarkets and even time of day. Matinees are because during the day, many people weren't coming to the movies. So they said, how do we scale this company? We put people in seats when they incentivize them with a discount. This is not the same thing. This is a job that I've got to have materials and costs, and I've given you a competitive bid that I can do this job for with very little wiggle room, but there's going to be some. But 60%, they don't believe your first number, that person, unfortunately, and I'm not calling them out. They asked for my help. I'm telling you, that customer ended up going with someone else. You lost credibility. You didn't even explain. I don't know that you did. Maybe you did. Is it reasonable to have an insurance versus a non-insurance price and remediation restoration? I would love to see your comments here. Is it reasonable? Is it feasible? Is it ethical? And I, I wrote this up last night and I, I spun it around in my head. Yes, there are obvious costs and risk involved with doing work where insurance companies are involved. We've been talking about it during this hour. I'm going to risk that the insurance might not reimburse you. I'm going to risk that I don't even know if your policy completely covers all the work that needs to be required for me to warranty this job. If I abbreviate the scope based on what you said, am I really doing you a full job? And will that come back to bite me later? You have to know that. I'm running a risk of you, the homeowner, business owner, getting the check and not paying me. I have lien rights. I can sue you. But now I'm going to incur extra costs and time. That money is different over a period of time. And in, in working with the insurance company, my, the price might be higher, but because I absorbed more administrative and operational 
responsibilities. I have to document differently. I have to have more conferences and conversations. And now there might be third parties. And I might be doing stuff on this job to document the job for the carrier, which you're doing them a favor. You're Tom Sawyer whitewashing. I might be doing things that I wouldn't have had to do if it was just you and I. So of course my job's going to be different priced. But if you want to pay me direct, but but why didn't you offer that in the beginning before the talk of insurance? Tell the customer, I've got two prices, insurance, I got to wait, or non-insurance. You now have positioned yourself with an alternative for your customer. You've gained trust, but if you don't describe why your price might be different to your customer, they're forced to come up with their own reasons why in their head, and you may not like their decisions. So selling is selling. Bids are bids. Doesn't matter what you do. You got to learn how to sell. That's just, I'm sorry, that's just it. But present a great bid, great scope of work, clear what the outcomes will be. Put in there the stakes if you want to. I always say, when I'm doing my course, this course will give you this result. Here's what it looks like if you don't take the course. And everybody knows it. It's not manipulation. But if you don't change, you're going to keep not knowing what to do and getting what you've been getting. So, Buy the course, $100, $200, $500, whatever it is. Move away from that pain. That education will create more revenue for you, not only immediately, but over the next 20 years. That's a proposition. What does a healthy house look like? What does a rebuilt house look like? Insurance isn't going to pay. Now they're going to hire the least qualified person who's going to cut corners. you got to talk about that. So listen, a lot of bad things can happen when people cut corners, especially on the mitigation side. You possibly could have someone in the house have a negative effect from a health feature, and you don't even know why. You're just going to find out that people are getting sick. You're not going to trace it back to this improper remediation, and you're going to the doctor, and doctor doesn't know that you had a flood. So you've got to really be the expert in that, and that's what bids are. Bids are positioning yourself as the expert in a way. So insurance, non-insurance, I think that there could be. I just think you got to be really, really clear and careful and consistent on how you always do that. Because if you do go to court, if you ever went to court, you need to have a track record and say, this is how I always do it. And give them cases, give them examples of other projects where you bid it two different ways. Then you have all the legs to stand on. So think about things with the end in mind. The last one... Thank you. Uh, That was from Paul and Marshall. Thank you guys for that great topic. The last one came in from Christina. Christina happens to work in HR for a a very good company. And she's talking again, we're going to come back to culture, but a different way. The burnout of the staff from after hours calls. And then going into that further, the issue is there are, she said, it's not mandatory that everyone participates on the young call. So those that do, the right people that are aligned with your company and realize that that's just part of what we do. And sometimes customers need help after hours. We're in the emergency service. That's a promise we made, the big promise. But when you have a company where it's optional, which is on the surface, a pretty cool deal, but those people continue to do it and other people don't. And those other people are still getting paid. Maybe they're hourly. If they're salary, that's another problem. But they're not making as much, especially if you have little incremental bonuses for after hours. And you got to be absorbed, absorbed, you know, uh, aware of that. If you're getting compensated to work after hours and, and you need the income to do whatever it is you need to do, pay your bills or, or save, then stay in your lane. But what she's talking about is the burnout of people getting burnt out of being always the one that have to go and then others don't. I believe you start to have this conversation in your head that says the money's not always worth it. I'm missing a lot of my kids' time and my family. They're all doing fun stuff and blah, blah, blah. And then I've got this culture where these other people here aren't required to do it. These are issues. And this is how the old saying is, if you treat all your kids the same, you'll be wrong half the time. But in your company, there has to be a standard. Everyone should participate if they're in a position. And this is when we write up accountability charts for a position. You take people's names out of it because that means that position requires the same thing for everyone. Now, if people don't have some skills or match up or have alignment or want to do that job, then they're not going to be put into that position because that's where you're going to have this disruption of trying to get people to do jobs that they don't want to do, and they're not going to do it. They're just not. They might for a minute or a while, but eventually they're going to put up a wall and say, F no. So you have to say this position requires this for everyone. It's kind of like the whole, in sports, a participation trophy. No matter if you tried really hard or you didn't, you're all going to get a trophy. That breeds a real resentment, and it doesn't cohesionally bring 
a team up together. And I'm not trying to bash this company. I'm not saying that this is what they're intentionally doing, but I think this is a result of these decisions and it needs to be looked at. If there is, in fact, burnout, we need to find out why. Leadership needs to hear them. They need to shut up and listen and say, what, what are you burn out about? Well, I'm burnt out that I'm the only person that's working after hours in this whole company. Well, you're not doing many after hours if you've just got one person. But secondly, why isn't everybody else? And why aren't they? Well, they don't want to do this. Well, maybe that's not the position. Maybe there's a next level of lead tech to, and they make more. You reward that. But then you need more of those positions depending on how many after hours calls you get. There's so many different lanes that this goes down. I don't know. Are we going to turn down after hours? Then we're all of a sudden running people away into our competitors' arms. And, and if your competitors aren't very good, you're pushing them to make a decision on a place that's not a quality, your value goes down. So that was her question. That's a very complicated one. Um, I hope I delicately <laughs> answered that. I probably didn't. But I think that's a cultural issue, and it's got to be handled in a real black and white way. Extreme ownership. Extreme ownership. This is the job we've got to do. you got to find people that will do this job. You cannot have all these different little variations within one position. It doesn't end well. Before we wrap up, Dan, circle back around real quick. $5 million company, what does the company look like? People, positions, et cetera. Dan, medication only, recon, the market matters. But again, all things being equal, at $5 million, you probably have 25 employees-ish. 23 to 26 you want to keep that overhead low depending on how efficient you are you're going to move all that overhead the office admin you're going to have more of that somebody's got to train everyone you're going to have other positions that aren't necessarily attributed and built to the job and those are going to be your overhead you want to limit those you want someone that can train your team to do that uh boat recon you don't need to really scale a whole bunch with people and trucks and stuff if you're subbing that out. If you're self-performing, you, of course, got to have you know your own staff and management of them. But one project manager in reconstruction, if that's what you want to do, a qualified, a good project manager in construction that is knows what they're doing, can manage schedules, can manage customers and subs, and is not burdened by other things. Uh, I see a lot of people in, in this industry have a position which a person is perfectly qualified to do their job. Job, but because of the chaotic nature and other people being undertrained or shorthanded, those people are having to wear multiple hats and they're not doing the one thing they're supposed to be doing very, very well. And they start get to start to get negative impact. So that's a big wide open question, Dan. I think businesses go through these little notch levels at a million. It's a different company than what you built. And uh, a lot of people hit, they hit a real wake-up call at a million saying, okay, it's says now, I don't know my numbers. Now I need to know my numbers. Uh, my QuickBooks is a fucking bird's nest. Now I got to clean up my QuickBooks. I don't know how to do that, so I got to get a bookkeeper. There's another cost. You might need a mentor and a coach on some level. We have several clients that are at that 750 to 1.2 million because they hit that point where they say, I now see that if I can get through this phase, I can go anywhere. You're going to move up. Your project manager has become more qualified. Again, you're delegating a whole lot more. Your marketing has to go up because you now are no longer able just to market to the few little circles that you're already in. You need to reach outside of those. You're participating more in business development and acquiring. As you grow, Dan, I guess one thing I would tell you and what I tell all my founders, there's going to be a point in your business where you're no longer, your job is no longer jobs, projects. Your job becomes people. You're going to be responsible for growing people now and managing the people and what they need to grow. And they do the jobs. And you've got to be okay with it. Perfection, 80% rule comes back in. you got to be okay with 80% quality and coach them through the rest of it. But $5 million, you probably have an office manager, office admin. Maybe you have that much earlier. But at that point, you might have divisional managers. So you have someone in your mitigation. And sometimes people have a water team and a fire team, and they have a lead. And then reconstruction has a lead. Business development sales has a lead. And then who's responsible? But you start looking at your business like an airplane. Who's watching the finances? Who's watching the sales and marketing? Who's watching the production of the different parts? And who's watching you know the, the everything else? So you've got these little interesting parts. It's not something that I can spell out here on the call, but it looks much different than where you were and where you think you might be. Getting to 2 million, people start to believe... I'm making good money. I'm, I got this. Two, two, then scaling is all you got to do because you now have people and you've got this roller coaster, inconsistent leads. At $2 million, your overhead is so high to pay the bills when there's not busy. You're going to feel that. Your receivables are going to be higher. You're doing more jobs and you're now holding more receivables. 
These are all pain points that we go through with with uh, all of our founders. And I think there's some people on the call today that probably can uh, attest to that and have dealt with some of that stuff before. So I hope that answers your question there. And I hope anyone else, if you have any questions, you can bring this up. Dan, thanks for thanks for those that showed up. Ryan, who's let me ask this question. Who is starting to see some payments come in from their freeze jobs from the polar freeze across the country? I know a lot of people had huge receivables and a lot of money on the books for that. And I was really concerned about how quick a lot of people didn't get their invoices out for weeks after because they were so busy in the jobs. And that's, that's something about scaling. When it's important to get your invoices out to get paid, I would say do that within 48 hours. If you wait weeks, you're now no longer on your customer's mind or their insurance's mind, and you're going to go in line with everybody else, and it's going to delay that. Jobs that get put in there quicker and faster tend to get paid a little bit quicker, especially if you've got a process around it in your client onboarding. So anyway, I guess that's it. Guys, I appreciate you joining and giving us some time today. I find these sessions to be incredibly rewarding. And I hope that if nothing else, a couple of people wrote some things down and they go and apply it to their business and think about how they're doing it now. Uh, reach out to each other. If you saw a comment from someone, reach out to that person here and say, hey, I like what you said. Uh, blah, blah. Otherwise, reach out to us if you want to grow your business. We have something something new coming out soon. It's going to be a, uh, a membership. It's going to be really, really great. You'll be able to get a lot of knowledge and access to a lot of content and uh, information and courses for a much lower price. And I think it's going to be revolutionary. It's really going to change things for, for everybody involved. And it's going to allow us to help more people, which is really all we really want to do. So if nothing else, that's it for us. Thanks for watching Disaster Podcaster. As always, reach out at restorationadvisors.com and have a good week. Take care.